Part 2. Thoughts on the Present State of American Affairs In the following pages I offer nothing more than simple facts, plain arguments, and common sense, and have no other preliminaries to settle with the reader than that he will divert himself of prejudice and prepossession, and suffer his reason and his feelings to determine for themselves that he will put on, or rather that he will not put off, the true character of a man, and generously enlarge his views beyond the present day. Volumes have been written on the subject of the struggle between England and America. Men of all ranks have embarked in the controversy, from different motives and with various designs, but all have been ineffectual, and the period of debate is closed. Arms is the last resource. Decide the contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. It hath been reported of the late Mr. Pelham, who, though an able minister, was not without his faults that on being his, on his being attacked in the house of commons on the score that his measures were only of a temporary kind replied they will last my time should a thought too fatal and unmanly possess the colonies in the present contest the name of ancestors will be remembered by future generations with det detestation the fun the sun never shined on a cause of greater worth Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fracture now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. By referring the matter from argument to arms, a new era for politics is struck. A new method of thinking hath arisen. All plans, proposals... Prior to the 19th of April, to the commencement of hostilities are like the almanacs of the last year, which, though proper then, are superseded and useless now. Whatever was advanced by the advocates on either side of the question then terminated in one and the same point, a union with Great Britain. The only difference between the parties was the method of effecting it, the one proposing force, the other friendship. But it hath so far happened on that the first hath failed, and the second hath withdrawn her influence. As much hath been laid, hath been said of the advantages of reconciliation, which, like an agreeable dream, hath passed away and left us as we were. It is but right that we should examine the contrary side of the argument, and inquire into some of the many material injuries which these colonies sustain, and always will sustain, by being connected with and dependent on Great Britain, to examine the connection and dependence on the principles of nature and common sense, to see what we have to trust to if separated, and what we are to expect if dependent. I have heard it asserted by some that as America hath flourished under her former connection with Great Britain, that the same connection is necessary toward her future happiness, and will always have the same effect. Nothing can be more fallacious than this kind of argument. We may as well assert that because a child has thrived upon milk, that it is never to have meat, or that the th first twenty years of our lives is to become a precedent for the next twenty. 
But even this is admitting more than is true, for I answer roundly that America would have flourished as much and probably much more had no European power had anything to do with her. The commerce by which she hath enriched herself are the necessaries of life and will always have a market while eating in the custom of Europe. But she has protected us, say some. That she hath engul engrossed us is true and defended the continent at our expense as well as her own is admitted and she would have defended turkey from the same motive the fit sake of tradition and dominion alas we have long led away by ancient prejudices and made large sacrifices to superstition we have boasted the protection of great britain without considering that her motive was interest not attachment that she did not protect us from our enemies on our account but from her enemies on her account and from those who had no quarrel with us on any other account and who will always be our enemies on the same account let britain waive her pretensions to the continent or the continent throw off the dependence and we should be at peace with france and spain were they at war with britain the miseries of hanover last war ought to warn us against connections it hath lately been asserted in parliament that the colonies have no relation to each other but through the parent country the pennsylvania and the jerseys and so on for the rest are fifter colonies are sifter colonies, forgive me, typos and images from the original documents, always a struggle, by the way of England. This is certainly a very roundabout way of proving relationship, but it is the nearest and only true way of proving enemyship, if I may so call it. France and Spain never were, nor perhaps ever will be our enemies as Americans, but as our being the subjects of Great Britain. But Britain is the parent country, say some. Then the more shame upon her conduct. Even brutes do not devour their young, nor savages make war upon their families. Wherefore the assertion, if true, turns to her reproach. But it happens not to be true, or only partly so. So, And the phrase parent or mother country hath been Jesuitically adopted by the king and his parasites, with a low papistical design of gaining an unfair bias on the credulous weakness of our minds. Europe, and not England, is the parent country of America. This new world hath been the asylum for the perfected, persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. Hither have they fled, not from the tender embraces of the mother, but from the cruelty of the monster." And it is so far true of England that the same tyranny which drove the first immigrants from home pursues their descendants still. In this extensive quarter of the globe, we forget the narrow limits of 360 miles, the extent of England, and carry our friendship on a larger scale. We claim brotherhood with every European Christian and triumph in the generosity of the sentiment. It is pleasant to observe by what regular gradations we surmount the force of local prejudice as we enlarge our acquaintance with the world. A man born in any town in England divides into parishes will naturally associate most with his fellow parishioners because their interests in many cases will be common and distinguish him by the name of neighbor. If he meet him but a few miles from home, he drops the narrow idea of a street and salutes him by the name of townsman. If he travels out of the county and meet him in any other, he forgets the minor divisions of street and town and calls him countryman, countyman. But if in their foreign excursions they should associate in France or any part of Europe, their local remembrance would be enlarged into that of Englishmen. And by, by just parity 
of reasoning, all Europeans meeting in America or any other quarter of the globe are countrymen. For England, Holland, Germany, or Sweden, when compared with the whole, stand in the same places on the larger scale which the divisions of street, town, and county do on the smaller ones. Distinctions too limited for continental minds. Not one-third of the inhabitants even of this province are of English descent. Wherefore, I reprobate the phrase of parent or mother country applied to England only as being false, selfish, narrow, and ungenerous. But admitting that we are all of English descent, what does it amount to? Nothing. Britain, being now an open enemy, extinguishes every other name and title. And to say reconciliation is our duty is truly farcical. The first king of England of the perfect... Of the present line, William the Conqueror was a Frenchman, and half the peers of England are descendants from the same country. Wherefore, by the same method of reasoning, England ought to be gover governed by France. Much hath been said of the united strength of Britain and the colonies, that in conjunction they might bid defiance to the world. But this is more presumption. The fate of war is uncertain. Neither do the expressions mean anything, for this continent would never suffer itself to be drained of inhabitants to support the British arms in either Asia, Africa, or Europe. Besides, what have we to do with the setting the world at defiance. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. I challenge the warmest advocate for reconciliation to show a single advantage that this continent can reap by being connected with Great Britain. I repeat the challenge. Not a single advantage is derived. Our corn will fetch its price in any market in Europe, and our imported goods must be paid for by them where we will. But the injuries and disadvantages we sustain by that connection are without number, and our duty to mankind at large as well as to ourselves instruct us to renounce the alliance, because any submission to or dependence on Great Britain tends directly to involve this continent in European wars and quarrels, and sets us at variance with nations who would otherwise seek our friendship and against whom we have neither anger nor complaint. As Europe is our market for trade, we ought to form no partial connection with any part of it. It is the true interest of America to steer clear of European contentions, which she never can do, while by her dependence on Britain she is made the make weight in the scale of British politics. Europe is too thickly planted with kingdoms to be long at peace, and whenever a war breaks out between England and any foreign power, the trade of America goes to ruin because of her connection with Britain. The next war may not turn out like the last, and should it not, the advocates for reconciliation now will be wishing for separation then, because neutrality in that case would be a safer convoy than a man of war. Everything that is right or natural pleads for separation. The blood of the slain, the weeping voice of nature cries, "'Tis time to part.'" Even the distance at which the Almighty hath placed England and America is a strong and natural proof that the authority of the one over the other was never the design of heaven. The time, likewise, at which the continent was discovered adds weight to the argument, and the manner in which it was people increases the force of it. The Reformation was preceded by the discovery of America as if the Almighty graciously meant to open a sanctuary to the per persecuted in future years, when home should afford neither friendship nor safety. The authority of Great Britain over this continent is a form of government which sooner or later must have an end, and a 
nefarious, a serious mind can draw no true pleasure by looking forward under the painful and positive conviction that what he calls the present constitution is merely temporary. As parents, we can have no joy knowing that this government is not sufficiently lasting to ensure anything which we may bequeath to posterity. And by a plain method of argument, as we are running the next generation into debt, we ought to do the work of it. Otherwise, we use them meanly and pitifully. In order to discover the line of our duty rightly, we should take our children in our hand and fix our station a few years farther into life that eminence will present a prospect which a few present fears and prejudices conceal from our fight. Though I would carefully avoid giving unnecessary offense, yet I am inclined to believe that all those who espouse the doctrine of reconciliation may be included within the following descriptions. Interested men who are not to be trusted, weak men who cannot see, prejudiced men who will not see, and a certain set of moderate men who think better of the European world than it deserves. And this last class, by an ill-judged deliberation, will be the cause of more calamities to this continent than all the other three. It is the good fortune of many to live distant from the scene of sorrow. The evil is not sufficiently brought to their doors to make them feel the precariousness with which all American property is possessed. But let our imaginations transport us for a moment to Boston. That feat of wretchedness will teach us wisdom and instruct us forever to renounce a power in whom we can have no trust. The inhabitants of that unfortunate city, who but a few months ago were in ease and affluence, have now no other alternative than to stay and starve or turn out to beg. Endangered by the fire of their friends, if they continue within the city, and plundered by the soldiery if they leave it. In their present condition, they are prisoners without the hope of redemption, and in a general attack for their relief, they would be exposed to the fury of both armies. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, and still hoping for the best are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind. Bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then you are only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience will, in a little time, fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed by f before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then you are not a judge of those who have. But if you have and still can shake hands with the murderers, then you are unworthy the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. This is not inflaming or exaggerating matters, but trying them by those feelings and affections which nature justifies, and without which we should be incapable of discharging the social duties of life or enjoying the solicities of it. I mean not to exhibit horror for the purpose of provoking revenge, but to awaken us from fatal and unmanly slumbers, that we may pursue determinately some fixed object. It is not the power of Britain or of Europe to conquer America. If she does not conquer herself by delay and timidity, the present winter is worth an age if rightly employed, but if lost or neglected, the whole continent will partake of the misfortune. 
And there is no punishment which man will not deserve, be he who or what or where he will, that may be the means of sacrificing of reason, a season so precious and useful. It is repugnant to reason, to the universal order of things, to all examples from former ages, to suppose that this continent can longer remain subject to any external power. The most sanguine in Britain does not think so. The utmost stretch of human wisdom cannot at this time compass a plan short of separation, which can promise the continent even a year's security. Reconciliation is now a fallacious dream. Nature hath deserted the connection, and art cannot supply her place. For as Milton wisely expresses, Never can true reconcilement grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so deep. Every quiet method for peace hath been ineffectual. Our prayers have been rejected with disdain and only intended to convince us that nothing flatters vanity or confirms obstinacy in kings more than repeated petitioning, and nothing hath contributed more than that very measure to make the kings of Europe absolute. Witness Denmark and Sweden, wherefore, since nothing but blows will do for God's sake, let us come to a final separation, and not leave the next generation to be cutting throats under the violated unmeaning names of parent and child. To say they will never attempt it again is idle and visionary. We thought so at the repeal of the Stamp Act, yet a year or two undeceived us. As well may we suppose that nations which have been once defeated will never renew the quarrel. As to government matters, it is not in the power of Britain to do this continent justice. The business of it will soon be too weighty and intricate to be managed with any tolerable degree of convenience by power so distant from us and so very ignorant of us. For if they cannot conquer us, they cannot govern us. To be always running three or four thousand miles with a tail or a petition waiting four or five months for an answer, which then obtained, requires five or six more to explain it in, will in a few years be looked upon as folly and childishness. There was a time when it was proper and there is a proper time for it to cease. Small islands not capable of protecting themselves are the proper objects for kingdoms to take under their care, but there is something very absurd in supposing a continent to be perpetually governed by an island. In no instance hath nature made the satellite larger than its primary planet, and as England and America with respect to each other reverses the common order of nature, it is evident they belong to different systems, England to Europe, America to itself. I am not induced by motives of pride, party, or resentment to espouse the doctrine of separation and independence. I am clearly, positively, and confidently, conscientiously persuaded that it is the true interest of this continent to be so, that everything short of that is mere patchwork, that it can afford no lasting solicity, that it is leaving the sword to our children and shrinking back at a time when a little more, a little farther, would have rendered this continent the glory of the earth. As Britain hath not manifested the least inclination toward a compromise, we may be assured that no terms can be obtained worthy the acceptance of the continent, or anyways equal to the expense of blood and treasure we have been already put to. The object contended for ought always to bear some just proportion to the expense. The removal of North, the whole detestable junto, is a matter unworthy the millions we have expended. 
A temporary stoppage of trade was an inconvenience which would have sufficiently balanced the repeal of all the acts complained of. Had such repeals been obtained, but if the whole continent must take up arms, if every man must be a soldier, it is scarcely worth our while to fight against a contemptible ministry only. Dearly, dearly do we pay for the repeal of the acts. If that is all we fight for, for in a just estimation, it is as great a folly to pay a Bunker Hill price for law as for land. As I have always considered the independency of this continent as an event which sooner or later must arrive, so from the late rapid progress of the continent to maturity, the event could not be far off. Wherefore, on the breaking out of hostilities, it was not worth the while to have disputed a matter, which time would have finally redressed, unless we meant to be in earnest. Otherwise, it is like wasting an estate on a suit at law to regulate the trespasses of attendant whole. Lease is just expiring. No man was a warmer wisher for reconciliation than myself before the fatal 19th of April, 1775. But the moment the event of that day was made known, I rejected the hardened, full-intempered pharaoh of England forever and disdained the wretch that with the pretended title of father of his people can unfeelingly hear of their slaughter and composedly sleep with their blood upon his foul soul. But admitting the matters were now made up, what would be the event? I answer the ruin of the continent, and that for several reasons. First, the power of governing still remaining in the hands of the king, he will have a negative over the whole legislation of this continent. And as he hath shown himself such an inveterate enemy to liberty, and discovered such a thirst for arbitrary power, is he or is he not a proper man to say to the colonies, You shall make no laws but what I please? And is there any inhabitant in America so ignorant as to know that according to what is called the present constitution, that this continent can make no laws but what the king gives leave to? And is there any man so unwise as not to see, that considering what has happened he will suffer no law to be made here, but such as suit his purpose? We may be as effectually enslaved by want of laws in America as by submitting to laws made for us in England. After matters are made up, as it is called, can there be any doubt? But the whole power of the crown will be exerted, to keep this continent as low and humble as possible. Instead of going forward, we shall go backward, or be perpetually quarreling, or ridiculously petitioning. We are already greater than the king wishes us to be, and will he not hereafter endeavor to make us less? To bring the matter to one point is the, ho is the power who is jealous of our prosperity, a proper power to govern us. Whoever says no to this question is an independent, for independency means no more than whether we shall make our own laws or whether the king, the greatest enemy this continent hath, or can have, shall tell us, there shall be no laws, but such as I like. But the king, you will say, has a negative in England. The three, the people there can make no laws without his consent. In point of right and good order, there is something very ridiculous that a youth of twenty-one, which hath often happened, shall lay to several millions of people older and wiser than himself. I forbid this or that act of yours to be law, but in this place I decline the sort of reply, though I will never cease to expose the absurdity of it, and only answer that England being the king's residence, and America not so, makes quite another case." The king's negative here is ten times more dangerous and fatal than it can be in England. For there he will scarcely refuse his consent to a bill for putting England into as strong a state of defense as possible, and in America he would never suffer such a bill to be passed. America is only a secondary object in the system of British politics. England consults the good of this country no farther than it answers her own purpose. 
Wherefore, her own interest leads her to suppress the growth of ours in every case which doth not promote her advantage, or in the least interferes with it. A pretty state we should soon be under such a second-hand government, considering what has happened. Men do not change from enemies to friends by the alteration of a name. And in order to show that reconciliation now is dangerous doctrine, I affirm that it would be policy in the king at this time to repeal the acts for the sake of reinflating himself into the government of the provinces, in order that he may accomplish by craft and subtlety in the long run what he cannot do by force and violence in the short one. Reconciliation and ruin are nearly related. Secondly, that is even the best terms which we can expect to obtain can amount to no more than a temporary expedient or a kind of government by guardianship which can last no longer than till the colonies come of age. So the general face and state of things in the interim will be unsettled and unpromising. Emigrants of property will not choose to come to a country whose form of government hangs but by a thread, and which is every day tottering on the brink of commotion and disturbance, and numbers of present inhabitants would lay hold of the interval to dispose of their effects and quit the continent. But the most powerful of all arguments is that nothing but independence, a continental form of government, can keep the peace of the continent and preserve it, inviolate, from civil wars. I dread the prevent... I dread the event of a reconciliation with Britain now, as it is more than probable that it will be followed by a revolt somewhere or other, the consequences of which may be far more fatal than the malice of Britain. Thousands are already ruined by British barbarity. Thousands more will probably suffer the same fate. Those men have other feelings than us who have nothing suffered. All they now possess is liberty that they before enjoyed as sacrifice to its service, and having nothing more to lose, they disdain submission. Besides, the general temper of the colonies towards a British government will be like that of a youth who is nearly out of his time. They will care very little about her, and a government which cannot preserve the peace is no government at all. And in that case, we pay our money for nothing and pray what it is that Britain can do, whose power will be wholly on paper should a civil tumult break out the very after reconciliation. I have heard some men say, many of whom I believe spoke without thinking, that they dreaded an independence, fearing that it would produce civil wars. It is but seldom that our first thoughts are truly correct, and that it is the case here. For there are ten times more to dread from a patched-up connection than from independence. I make the sufferer's case my own, and I protest that were I driven from house and home, my property destroyed, and my circumstances ruined, that as man sensible of injuries, I could never relish the doctrine of reconciliation or consider myself bound thereby." The colonies have manifested such a spirit of good order and obedience to continental government as is sufficient to make every reasonable person easy and happy on that head. No man can assign the least pretense for his fears on any other grounds than such as are truly childish and ridiculous, that one colony will be thriving for superiority over another, where there are no distinctions that can be superiority perfect. Equality affords no temptation. The republics of Europe are all and we may say always, in peace. Holland and Switzerland are without wars, foreign or domestic. Monarchical governments, it is true, are never long at rest. The crown itself, a temptation to enterprising ruffians at home, and that degree of pride and insolence ever attendant on regal authority, swells into a rupture with foreign powers in instances where a republican government, by being formed on more natural principles, would negotiate the mistake. 
If there is any true cause of fear respecting independence, it is because no plan is yet laid down. Men do not see their way out, wherefore it is an opening into that business. I offer the following hints, at the same time modestly affirming that I have no other opinion of them myself, than that they may be means of giving rise to something better. <laughs> Could the struggling thoughts of individuals be collected? They would frequently form materials for wife and able men for wise and able, able men to improve into useful matter. Let the assemblies be annual with a president only, the representation more equal, their business wholly domestic and subject to the authority of Continental Congress. Let each colony divi be divided into six, eight, or ten convenient districts. Each district defend a proper number to send a proper number of delegates to Congress, so that each colony send at least 30. The whole number in Congress will be at least 390 each Congress to fit, and to choose a president by the following method. When the delegates are met, let a colony be taken from the whole 13 colonies by lot, after which let the whole Congress choose by ballot a president from out of the delegates of that province. In the next Congress, let a colony be taken by lot from 12 only, omitting that colony from which the president was taken in the former Congress, and so proceeding on till the whole 13 shall have had their proper rotation. And in order that nothing may pass into a law, but what is satisfactorily just, not less than three-fifths of Congress to be called a majority. He that will promote discord under a government so equally formed as is would have joined Lucifer in his revolt. But as there is a particular delicacy, from whom or in what matter this business must first arise, and as it seems most agreeable and consistent, that it should come from some intermediate body between the governed and the governors, that is, between the Congress and the people, let a continental conference be held, in the following manner and for the following purpose. A committee of 26 members of Congress, two for each colony, two members from each house of assembly or provincial convention, and five representatives of the people at large to be chosen in the capital city or town of each province, for and in behalf of the whole province by as many qualified voters as shall think proper to attend from all parts of the province for that purpose, or, if more convenient, the representatives may be chosen in two or three of the most populous parts thereof. In this conference thus assembled will be united the two grand principles of business, knowledge, and power. The members of Congress assemble or conventions by having had experience in national concerns will be able and useful counselors, and the whole being empowered by the people will have a truly legal authority. The conferring members being met, let their business be to frame a continental charter, or charter of the United Colonies, answering to what is called the Magna Carta of England, fixing the number and manner of choosing members of Congress, members of assembly with their date of fitting, and drawing the line of business and jurisdiction between them, always remembering that our strength is continental, not provincial, securing freedom and property to all men, and above all things, the free exercise of religion, according to all the dictates of conscience, with such other matter as is necessary for a charter to contain. Immediately after which, the said conference to dissolve, and the bodies which shall be chosen conformable to the said charter, to be the legislators and governors of the continent for the time being. Whole peace and happiness may God preserve. Should any body of men be hereafter delegated for this or some similar purpose, I offer them the following extracts from that wise observer on governments, Dragonetti. 
The science, says he, of the politician consists in fixing the true point of happiness and freedom. Those men would deserve the gratitude of ages, who should discover a mode of government that contained the greatest sum of individual happiness with the least national expense. Dragonetti on virtue and rewards. But where, says some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above, and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain. Yet that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world we know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king. For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king. And there ought to be no other, but lest any ill use should afterwards arise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. A government of our own is our natural right, and when a man furiously reflects... On the precariousness of human affairs, he will become convinced that it is infinitely wiser and safer to form a constitution of our own in a cool, deliberate manner, while we have it in our power that to trust such an interesting event to time and chance, if we omit it now, some Massanello may thereafter arise, who, laying hold of popular disquietudes may collect together the desperate and the discontented and by assuming to themselves the power of government may sweep away the liberties of the continent like a deluge should the government of america return again into the hands of britain the torturing situation of things will be a temptation for some desperate adventurer to try his fortune and in such a case what relief can britain give Ere she could hear the news, the fatal business might be done in ourselves suffering like the wretched Britons under the oppression of the conqueror. Yet they opposed independence now. Ye know not what ye do. Ye are opening a door to eternal tyranny by keeping vacant the feet of government. There are thousands and tens of thousands who would think it glorious to expel from the continent that barbarous and hellish power, which hath stirred up the Indians and Negroes to destroy us. The cruelty hath a double guilt. It is dealing brutally by us and treacherously by them. The talk of friendship with those in whom our reason forbids us to have faith and our affections wounded through a thousand pores, instruct us to detest is madness and folly. Every day wears out the little remains of kindred between us and them, and can there be any reason to hope that as the relationship expires, the affection will increase, or that we shall agree better when we have ten times more and greater concerns to quarrel more than ever. Ye that tell us of harmony and reconciliation can yet Restore to us the time that is past. Can ye give to prostitution its former innocence? Neither can ye reconcile Britain and America. The last cord now is broken. The people of England are presenting addresses against us. There are injuries which nature cannot forgive. The w- they would create and cease to be nature if she did. As well can the love forgive the ravisher of his mistress, as the continent forgive the murders of Britain. The Almighty hath implanted in us these inextinguishable feelings for good and wise purposes. They are the guardians of his image in our hearts. They distinguish us from the herd of common animals. The social compact would dissolve and justice be extirpated. The earth or have only a casual existence where we callous to the touches of affection. The robber and the murderer would often escape unpunished did not the injuries which our temper sustained provoke us into justice. 
O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny, but the tyrant, stand forth! Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been haunted around the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. Of the present ability of America, with some miscellaneous reflections. I have never met with a man, either in England or America, who hath not confessed his opinion that a separation between the countries would take place one time or other. And there is no instance in which we have shown less judgment than in endeavoring to describe what we call the ripeness or fitness of the continent for independence. As all men allow the measure, and vary only in their opinion of the time, let us, in order to remove mistakes, take a general survey of things and endeavor, if possible, to find out the very time. But we need not go far. The inquiry ceases at once, for the time hath found us. The general concurrence, the glorious union of all things, prove the fact. It is not in numbers but in unity that our great strength lies, yet our present numbers are sufficient to repel the force of all the world. The continent hath at this time the largest body of armed and disciplined men of any power under heaven, and is just arrived at that pitch of strength in which no single colony is able to support itself, and the whole, when united, can accomplish the matter, and either more or less than this might be fatal in its effects. Our land force is already sufficient, and as to naval affairs we cannot be insensible, that Britain would never suffer an American man-of-war to be built while the continent remained in her hands. Wherefore, we should be no forwarder in hundred years hence in that branch than we are now. But the truth is, we should be less so, because the timber of the country is every day diminishing, and that which will remain at last will be far off or difficult to procure." When the continent crowded with inhabitants, her sufferings under the present circumstances would be intolerable. The more seaport towns we had, the more should we have both to defend and to lose. Our present numbers are so happily proportioned to our wants that no man be idle. The diminution of trade affords an army, and the necessities of an army create a new trade. Debts we have none, and whatever we may contract on this account will serve as a glorious memento of our virtue. Can we but leave posterity with a settled form of government, an independent constitution of its own? The purchase at any price will be cheap, but to expend millions for the sake of getting a few vile acts repealed and routing the present ministry on only is unworthy the charge and is using posterity with the utmost cruelty because it is leaving them the great work to do in a debt upon their backs from which they derive no advantage such a thought is unworthy a man of honor and is the true characteristic of a narrow heart and a peddling politician the debt we may contract doth not deserve our regard if the work be but accomplished no nation ought to be without a debt a nation is a national bond and when it bears no interest is in no case a grievance Britain is oppressed with a debt of upwards of 140 million sterling, for which she pays upwards of 4 million interest. And as a compensation for her debt, she has a large navy. America is without a debt and without a navy. Yet for the 20th part of the English national debt could have a navy as large again. The navy of England is not worth at this time more than 3 millions and a half of sterling. The following calculations are given as proof that the above estimation of the navy is a just one. See Entix Naval History Intro, page 56. The charge of building a ship of each rate and furnishing her with masts, yards, sails, and rigging, together with a proportion of eight months, boat twains, and carpenters' seashores, as calculated by Mr. Burchett, Secretary to the Navy. 
and from hence it is easy to sum up the value or cost rather of the whole British Navy, which in the year 1757, when it was at its greatest glory, consisted of the following ships and guns. Payne then goes on to chart out various figures and numbers on how the colonies might come across a navy and what those numbers would look like in defense of themselves as a nation seeking independence. No country in the globe is so happily situated or so internally capable of raising a fleet as America. Tar, timber, iron, and cordage are her natural produce. We need not go abroad for nothing, whereas the Dutch who make large profits by hiring out their ships of war to the Spaniards and Portuguese are obliged to import most of the materials they use. We ought to view the building a fleet as an article of commerce, it being the natural manufactory of this country. It is the best money we can lay out. A navy, when finished, is worth more than its cost and is that the nice point in national policy in which commerce and protection are united. Let us build. If we want them not, we can fell. sell, excuse me, and by that means replace our paper currency with ready gold and silver. In point of manning a fleet, people in general run into great errors. It is not necessary that one-fourth part should be sailors. The terrible privateer, Captain Death, stood the hottest engagement of any ship last war, yet had not twenty sailors on board, though her complement of men was upwards of two hundred. A few able and social sailors will soon instruct a sufficient number of active landmen in the common work of a ship. Wherefore, we never can be more capable to begin on maritime matters than now. While our timber is standing, our fisheries blocked up, and our sailors and shipwrights out of employ, men of war of 70 and 80 guns were built 40 years ago in New England, and why not the same now? Shipbuilding is America's greatest pride, and in which the will in time excel the world. The great empires of the East are mostly inland, and consequently excluded from the possibility of rivaling her. Africa is in a state of barbarism, and no power in Europe hath either such an extent of coast or such an internal supply of materials, where nature hath given the one that has withheld the other. To America only hath been liberal of both. The vast empire of Russia is almost shut out from the sea, therefore her boundless... Forest, her tar, iron, and cordage are only articles of commerce. In point of safety, ought we to be without a fleet? We are not the people now, which were fifty, sixty years ago. At that time we might have trusted our property in the streets, or fields rather, and slept securely without locks or bolts to our doors or windows. The case now is altered, and our methods of defense ought to improve, with our increase of property. A common pirate twelve months ago might have come up the Delaware and laid the city of Philadelphia under instant contribution for what sum he pleaded, and the same might have happened to other places. Nay, any daring fellow in a brig of fourteen or sixteen guns might have robbed the whole continent and carried off a half million of money. These are circumstances which demand our attention and point out the necessity of naval protection. Some perhaps will say that after we have made it up with Britain, she will protect us. Can we be so unwise as to mean that she shall keep a navy in our harbors for that purpose? Common sense will tell us that the powers which hath endeavored to subdue us is of all the others the most improper to defend us. Conquest may be effected under the pretense of friendship, and ourselves, after a long and brave resistance, be at last cheated into slavery. And if her ships are not to be admitted into our harbors, I would ask, how is the, she to protect us? And maybe three or four thousand miles can be a little off can be of little use, and on sudden emergencies, none at all. Wherefore, if we must hereafter protect ourselves, why not do it for ourselves? Why do it for another? The English lift list of ships of war is long and formidable, but not a tenth part of them are at any one time fit for service, numbers of them not in being, yet their names are pompously continued in the list. 
If only a plank be left of the ship, and not only a fifth part of such are fit for service, can be spared on any one station at one time. The East and West Indies, Mediterranean, Africa, and other parts over which Britain extends her claim make large demands upon her navy. From a mixture of prejudice and inattention, we have contracted a false notion respecting the navy of England, and have talked as if we should have the whole of it to encounter at once. And for that reason, suppose that we must have one as large, which not being instantly practicable, have been made use of by a set of disguised Tories to discourage our beginning thereon. Nothing can be further from the truth than this, for if America had only 20th part of the naval force of Britain, she would be by far an overmatch for her, because as we neither have nor claim any foreign dominion, our whole force would be employed on our own coast, where we should in the long run have two to one the advantage of those who had three or four thousand miles to fail over sail over before they could attack us and the same distance to return in order to resit refit and recruit and although britain by her fleet hath a check over our trade to europe we have as large as one over her trade to the west indies which by laying the neighborhood of the continent is entirely at its mercy some method might be fallen on to keep up a naval force in times of peace if we should not judge it necessary to support a constant navy if premiums were to be given to merchants to build and employ in their service ships mounted with twenty thirty forty or fifty guns the premiums to be in proportion to the loss of bulk to the merchants. Fifty or sixty of those ships with a few guard ships on constant duty would keep up a sufficient navy, and that without burdening ourselves with the evil so loudly complained of in England of suffering their fleet. In times of peace to lie, rotting in the docks, to unite the sinews of commerce, and defense is found policy, for when our strength and our riches play into each other's hands we needs fear no external enemy. In almost every article of defense we abound, hemp flourishes even to the rankness, so that we need not want cordage. Our iron is superior to that of other countries, our small arms equal to any in the world. Common, can we not craft at pleasure? Saltpeter and gunpowder we are every day producing, our knowledge is hourly improving, resolution is our inherent character, and courage hath never yet forsaken us. Wherefore, what is it we want? Why is it that we hesitate? From Britain we can expect nothing but ruin. If she is once admitted to the government of America once again, this continent will not be worth living in. Jealousies will be arising. Always. Insurrections will be constantly happening. And who will go forth to quell them? Who will venture this life to reduce his own countrymen to a foreign obedience? The difference between Pennsylvania and Connecticut, respecting some unlocated lands, shows the insignificance of a British government and fully proves that nothing but continental authority can regulate continental matters. Another reason why the present time is preferable to all others, that the fewer our numbers are, the more land there is yet unoccupied, which instead of being lavished by the king on his worthless dependents, may be hereafter applied, not only to the discharge of the present debt, but to the constant support of government. No nation under heaven hath such an advantage as this. The instant state of the colonies, as it is called so far from being against, is an argument in favor of independence. We are sufficiently numerous, and were we more so, we might be less united." It is a matter worthy of observation that the more a country is compelled, the smaller their armies are. 
In military numbers, the ancients far exceeded the moderns, and the reason is evident. For trade being the consequence of population, men become too much absorbed, thereby to attend to anything else. Commerce diminishes the spirit both of patriotism and military defense, and history sufficiently informs us that the bravest achievements were always accomplished in the non-age of nation. With the increase of commerce, England hath lost its spirit. The city of London, notwithstanding its numbers, submits to continued insults with the patience of a coward. The more men has to lose, the less willing are they to venture. The rich are in general slaves to fear and submit to courtly power with the trembling duplicity of a spaniel. Youth is the feed time of good habits as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interest occasioned by an increase of trade and population would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance. And while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wife would lament that the union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and that friendship which is formed in misfortune, are of all others the most lasting and alterable, unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles and fixes a memorable era for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let flip the opportunity, and by that means have compelled to receive laws from their conquerors instead of making laws for themselves. First, they had a king and then form a government, whereas the articles or charter of government should have been formed first and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the efforts and errors of other nations, let us learn wisdom and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. When William the Conqueror subdued England, he gave them law at the point of the sword, and until we consent that the seat of government in America be legally and authoritatively occupied, we shall be in danger of having it filled by some fortunate ruffian who many treat is us in the same manner, and then where will be our freedom? Where our property? As to religion, I hold it to be the indispensable duty of all government, to protect all conscientious professors thereof, and I know of no other business which government hath to do therewith. Let a man throw aside that narrowness of soul, that selfishness of principle with which the n-words of all possessions are so unwilling to part with. And he will be at once delivered of his fears on that head. Suspicion is the companion of mean souls and the bane of all good society. For myself, I fully and conscientiously believe that it is the will of the Almighty that there should be diversity of religious opinions among us. It affords a larger field for our Christian kindness, where we all of one way of thinking, our religious dispositions, would want matter for probation. And on the liberal principle, I look on the various denominations among us to be likewise children of the same family, differing only in what is called their Christian names. In a former page, I threw out a few thoughts on the propriety of a continental charter, for I only presume to offer hints, not plans, and in this place I take the liberty of re-mentioning the subject by observing that a charter is to be understood as a bond of solemn obligation, which the whole enters into to support the right of every separate part, whether of religion, personal freedom, or property. A firm bargaining and a right reckoning make long friends. I have heretofore likewise mentioned the necessity of a large and equal representation, and there is no political matter which more deserves 
deserves our attention. A small number of electors or a small number of representatives are equally dangerous. But if the number of the representatives be not only small but unequal, the danger is increased. As an instance of this, I mention the following. When the Associators' petition was before the House of Assembly of Pennsylvania, 28 only were present. All the Bucks County members, being eight, voted against it, and had seven of Chester members done the same, this whole province had been governed by two counties only. And this danger is always exposed to, the unwarrantable stretch likewise, which that house made in their last fitting. To gain an undue authority over the delegates of that province ought to warn the people at large how they trust power out of their own hands. A set of instructions for their delegates were put together, which in point of sense and business would have dishonored a schoolboy, and after being approved by few of very few without doors, were carried into the house, and were passed in behalf of the whole colony. Whereas did the whole colony know, with what ill will that house hath entered on some necessary public measures, they would not hesitate a moment to think them unworthy of such a trust. Immediate necessity makes many things convenient, which, if continued, would grow into oppressions. Expedience and right are different things. When the calamities of America required consultation, there was no method so ready, or at the time so proper, as to appoint persons from the federal houses of assembly for that purpose, and the wisdom with which they have proceeded hath preserved this continent from ruin. But, uh, but as it is more than probable that we shall never be without a Congress, ever will wither to good order must own that the mode for choosing Choosing members of that body deserves confederation. Consideration. And I put it as a question to those who make a study of mankind, whether representation and election is not too great a power for one in the same body of men to possess. When we are planning for posterity, we ought to remember that virtue is not hereditary. It is from our enemies that we often gain excellent maxims, and are frequently surprised into reason by their mistakes. Mr. Cornwell, one of the lords of the treasury, treated the petition of the New York Assembly without contempt, because that house, he said, consisted but of 26 members, which trifling number, he argued, could not with decency be put for the whole. We thank him for his involuntary honesty. To conclude... However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence, some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations when any two are at war for some other powers not engaged in the quarrel to step in as mediators and bring about the prelim preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her meditation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance, if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we possess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered rebels. The precedent is somewhat dangerous to their peace. For men to be in arms under the names of subjects, we on the spot can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, we are a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts setting forth the miseries which we have endured and the peaceable methods we have intellectually used for redress declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or 
safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we have been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition toward them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them. Such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were frightened and freighted with petitions to Britain." Under our present denomination of British sub subjects, we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us and will be so until by an independence we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity.